This is my Game of Thrones podcast. It's Josh Talks Thrones. It's Josh Talks Thrones. It's Josh Talks Thrones. Yeah. I don't know the name of that one. They played that motif before, but notably during this episode, they played it during the uh, the Tommen Marjorie wedding, which I did not see coming. Guys, this is Josh Talks Thrones. It's the show where Josh talks thrones at you, and I'm Josh. Do we need to break it down more than that? Should we just get to it? This was season five, episode three, High Sparrow. And guys... I think we got a season on our hands. I think things are kicking off. I think we got some exciting stuff to talk about. A couple of big twists in this one. The biggest of which was sort of spoiled to me. Not that it lessens my delight at seeing it, because I think it actually plays pretty beautifully. But we'll get to that when we get to that. Let's start with a brand new location, one of a couple in this episode. The well, we've okay. Well, we've already seen the house of black and white, at least from the outside. We know it's got that black and white door. We know that it is this very enormous, imposing-looking building. But now we get to see inside. Appropriately, the secrets of the house of black and white are being slowly but surely revealed to us. First, we just saw was the big building. Then we saw that Jack and Hagar was inside in a role that doesn't make a whole lot of sense yet, but it's not supposed to. Really, the main stuff we're supposed to get from this initial look is mystery. Because it's not like a whole lot plot-wise was happening, except for Arya slowly figuring out what world has she found herself in now. As any, you know, she's probably the character outside of Tyrion who's had the most dynamic storyline in this show. Like, where every season she seems to move from place to place. It initially throughout Westeros, and now she's managed to transcend out of Westeros. Like Tyrion, it's exciting because she's this free agent. She's following her own path. She's willful. She's been at the whim of these external forces for so much of this, but she's managed to find a way to struggle out of it or escape out of it. And now, finally, she's off on a path that she chose. She decided she wants to, you know, become one of these dudes, become an assassin and get revenge and have magic faceless manpowers. So finally she saw this traditional quest narrative and things are happening and then she realizes she doesn't get to be the hero in this hero's journey. Because heroes have big names. Heroes have identities. Heroes are celebrated in songs. She can't be a hero because she has to break down her identity completely. She's already lost so much of what it means to be Arya Stark, Winterfell, her family, her fortune, any notion of the possibility of safety. Now she has to give up her clothes, her little coin purse, her sword, the last thing that really connects her to the person she once was, a whole country away. Even though this storyline is pretty intentionally murky so far, Although I like the way they've set up the interior of the house in black and white, it really does look a lot like I expected it. You know, this dark, wet room full of occasional travelers who come in to basically die peacefully. 
and also serve because this strange society for some reason serves this assassin cult, which does something with the bodies. We don't know what. We just know they need to be clean. I'm going to guess it has something to do with the faces. But that's just... Really, even though I've read the books, most of this stuff is just a hypothesis to me because who knows what they've changed. But the key thought here is one that animates a lot of religions appropriately and animates things like Scientology. It is part of what we consider cult-like behavior is you have to join the communal mind inside. You don't, you don't get to be yourself. She's not going to come out of this process as Arya Stark's super assassin. She's going to be something else. But she can't quite accept that yet. She can't even stick to that narrative because as she looks at Needle and realizes she can't let go of that, she keeps it hidden. Will she eventually decide she's not attached to the Stark name and that vengeance mission anymore? Or will she keep that kernel of herself? It's an exciting new place, but a very internal journey, and all the more interesting for it. You know who else is determined to follow their personal narrative is Stannis Baratheon. Stannis is one of the nobler people vying for the kinghood. I do believe he's attempting to aid the bloodshed and unite the Seven Kingdoms. He has good intentions, but those good intentions, like Jon Snow astutely points out, involve him being in control of Westeros. He's no saint. And whatever he says, it is clear that the moves he's making are not just for the good of the kingdom. Though they're not for the bad of the kingdom either. But importantly, they've got to be for the good of Stannis too. Everybody's got to eventually respect and recognize Stannis. Jon Snow's not like that. Jon Snow has, quite honorably, also as pointed out by Stannis, turned down that offer at self-actualization and made it clear this thing he'd wanted and was pushing towards all of his life, but eventually swore off of. Now that he's had that offered back to him as like, good for you, you decided you didn't need that, and now, as your reward, you get to have it. He realized it's too late, that it may bring him less personal renown, but he's more needed here. Although it seemed like Davos made a little bit of headway convincing him, didn't it? We hadn't heard much from Davos yet this season. It's been a lot of Stannis and Jon facing off, which has been very interesting. Because you could tell Stannis he's like a ton of himself in Jon. When, jo- when Jon cuts Janice Lynn's heads off, it is a deliberate homage to when Ned Stark and Rob Stark did the same thing. But it's also very much a Stannis move. If Stannis were Lord Commander, he would have done that. Like, it Precisely. And you could see Stannis stalking the whole affair and eventually giving him that little nod, like, yeah. Oh, and by the way, we did not see any wildlings this episode, but we did get a mention of Tormund Giantsbane, again, who's apparently the new leader of the wildlings. Interesting. Interesting. I've got to assume at this point that the show knows they're toying with us. And the fact that Stannis's army is marching towards Winterfell makes it at least possible that the big twist involving Tormund Giantsbane could still be coming. In general, I gotta say, I love the renewed focus on Winterfell. This show has stubbornly kept Winterfell in the opening credits, even as the Stark family has been destroyed, and Winterfell burnt to the ground, and every major player leaving the site. 
as if it's kind of as a location-wise the heart of the show which i think is true which might have been the justification so far but it's also a little bit of a promise that we're coming back to winterfell at some point in some form in any event it was nice to get a little bit of davos because davos is slyer than stannis is and davos as he says is willing to get his feet in the book willing to get a little bit dirty in order to do what is right for the seven kingdoms It's one of those lessons that Ned Stark desperately needed to hear and refused to listen to. Something tells me John is going to, at least at first, refuse to listen to it, too. I think he genuinely does not want to get involved in the politics of Westeros. I think that is genuinely true. But he's got to realize he needs to make a few political machinations in order to get ahead. It has always been a core tension animating like a lot of the major plot threads of this show idealism versus pragmatism and the starks with with really with the exception of Arya and now sansa have all been pretty firmly on the idealistic side but john's showing sides of pragmatism here in the way he makes alistair thorne his first ranger in order to get the in order to keep the hearts and minds of all the people who voted for alistair thorne which was nearly as many as voted for him that's a smart move janice lind on the other hand didn't fight in the Battle of Castle Black. Not really well liked by anyone. Even Alistair at the end of the day. Totally expendable. And God. Very, very satisfying to see that guy finally die. Sobbing and begging for mercy. Mercy he certainly did not deserve. Which I say as a staunch advocate for repealing the death penalty, I just realized. Man, this show makes you bloodthirsty. In, th- in this world... He would have deserved it a million times over. In our world, do you murder Janice Lind? I can't get behind it. This is a world that will eventually evolve out of capital punishment, okay? And in that world, Jon Snow would know the right move. But here, he's got to do what's right. Anyways, when I'm talking about renewed focus on Winterfell, what I'm mainly referring to is that aforementioned big twist that was spoiled for me because it is far from what happens in the books. I'm talking, of course, of the impending nuptials between Ramsay Bolton and Sansa Stark. Oh, oh, Sansa. Oh, Sansa, I'm so sorry. Betrothed first to Joffrey and now this douchebag? Why do you always end up with, like, the biggest sadists in Westeros? Is it just because you're so sweet and virginal and pure? And there's got to be, it's like an opposites attract thing? I don't know, either way. God, bummer. You thought Littlefinger was trying to help you this whole time. Of course, then he talks and you think, is Littlefinger trying to help her? What has Littlefinger got up his sleeve? Because here's why I initially found this twist dismaying, and then on second thought realized it's brilliant. Game of Thrones has a reputation for being sadistic and unnecessarily over-the-top violent and evil at times. And in some ways, that reputation is earned. I think especially a lot of last season. I'm thinking of a lot of the stuff at Craster's Keep. I don't even want to get into the infamous Jamie, kind of, sort of, maybe, quasi-rape Cersei scene. This is, a, this is a show that loves to be cruel at times, and it was getting to be a bit much in season four. Which, if you're assuming Game of Thrones is a seven-season arc, that's going to be... You think of that as most likely the nadir. 
if if Martin in season one tosses all these plot balls up in the air and they multiply and multiply and then they all come together and come together in season seven, where fortunes have maybe actually turned for some of the people who lost things and have now gained them, and people who've gained things and have now lost them, season four is going to be that nadir moment where things look like they are at their absolute worst. And then Tywin Lannister dies, and maybe some hopeful developments start to occur. So deciding to pair Sansa up with Ramsay fucking Bolton initially seems like, oh god, how could you do more shit like this to Sansa? Even if Ramsay has just gotten a stern lecture from his father to be on his best behavior. Yep, I know you're a sick bastard. I raised you to be a sick bastard. I love what a sick bastard you are, son. It's done a lot of great things for me. That's why I made you a full-on Bolton. But here's a situation where you gotta get married and you gotta play nice because people still care about that Stark name more than they care about you. The Lannisters sure don't care about you. So keep it tucked in and under your hat. And then Ramsay is all smiles and sugar and bashful sunshine for the rest of the episode. And I mean, when he says to Littlefinger, I will not hurt her, you have my word. It's not like this isn't a guy who you've seen lie and lie very well a lot. He's saying what he needs to say for now. Littlefinger knows that. So why would Littlefinger put Sansa in this situation? Here's, what's, here's why this twist is brilliant. It initially seems like Littlefinger is just using Sansa as a pawn in his own game once again. But Littlefinger doesn't want Sansa to be a pawn. Littlefinger is still the guy pulling the strings playing this masterful game of chess, don't get me wrong. But he doesn't want Sansa to be the pawn, he wants Sansa to be the queen. He wants Sansa to be a willing partner in his plans. I mean, shit, you really think Littlefinger's going to give up Sansa to the Boltons that easily? Sansa is, I think, in his mind, a bigger prize than the Eyrie or the North or any other lands or titles. He wants her pretty badly. And he makes it clear in that monologue to Sansa, although it's pretty subtle, at first at least, that his ulterior motive really isn't turning Sansa over to the Boltons again for more lands and titles. It's getting Sansa to stop being a bystander and avenge her family. He's trying to fuck over the Boltons, too. He is once again playing steps ahead of everybody, and I think he's going to let Sansa in on his game at this point, because he's starting to trust Sansa, and he likes people he can trust. Like the Tyrells. Remember that from season two? He will bring allies into his little schemes, and I think he wants Sansa to be his biggest ally. And Sansa is now at a point where we saw inklings of it in that dark, dreary season four, when she was building Winterfell and Robin was talking about how he wants to throw his enemies through the moon door. And she was like, yeah, that sounds nice. Sweet, virginal, pure Sansa is building up a little bit of bloodlust. She wants to be on Littlefinger's side because her and Littlefinger have the same list of people they're trying to take down. And she knows he's smart. And she's starting to, I wouldn't say trust him, but at least know what his broader intentions are. And I think she realizes after talking to him that he's got something up his sleeve too. 
And so she's going to walk into the snake pit and smile at Ramsey Bolton immediately after staring daggers right at him. As if to say, I know exactly who you are. Although she doesn't. Even Littlefinger doesn't know who he is. But she knows he's a Bolton, and that can't be good. It's a huge step in Sansa's arc. It is indeed a chance for her to stop being this put-upon princess in need of rescuing and start rescuing herself. In order to do that, she needs to take a proactive role. And this is being proactive. She might have a little bit more Arya in her than she realizes. So that is all exciting stuff. The fact that Sansa still hasn't realized Theon Greyjoy is here is exciting stuff. Even if Theon is still basically just a trembling wreck at this point. We barely see do much of anything. Except listening. Curiously. And how exciting is it that Stannis is on his way over to fight the Boltons? Possibly with some wildling help. Possibly with a specific wildling's help in particular. For what I assume is going to be the promised big winter battle that was supposed to come in Dance of Dragons, but has been pushed to the winds of winter. Not every Game of Thrones season ends with a big battle. So far, two of four have. This one easily could as well. They're certainly moving the pieces into the right positions to do that. And how exciting is it that Brienne and Podrick are making their way in this direction as well? A lot of storylines are converging into one spot. I think it's exactly what Game of Thrones fans have been waiting for. And damn it, I'm so excited. And that one spot is Winterfell. That's what's the most brilliant part of this. Arya has to swear off being a Stark for now. Jon Snow has renounced being a Stark in order to take his place at Castle Black. Bran Stark is everywhere and nowhere. Rickon Stark isn't part of this game. It's all on Sansa. Sansa might be the one, believe it or not, to in fact avenge Winterfell and make the Stark strong again. Because as that woman says to her, the North remembers. Ooh, this is going to be a fun development, seriously. And we haven't even talked about Brienne and Podrick yet, who get a big scene together. In one of those long two people talking to each other and revealing bits of their backstory scenes that Game of Thrones does so well. This was no exception. Our Brienne storyline is... We've caught up to the books at this point, and Game of Thrones writers have hung a lampshade on that a little bit by leaving Brienne in the first two episodes with no real mission at all. She thought she was off to save Sansa, but Sansa didn't want to be saved, and now she's stuck still going in the direction of Sansa, but not really sure what her end goal is. Now we're getting to see a little bit of what motivates her, and what motivates Pod, too. Yes, never has there lived a more loyal squire, but when Brienne asks him, do you want to be a knight, he does not hesitate when he says yes. He wasn't necessarily 100% happy with the path his life has taken. He was kind of uh, pushed into serving the Lannisters. And now he's got a chance to make carve his out, and now he's got a chance to carve out his own story again, too. Squiring for the greatest fighter in Westeros who's offered to train him. Pretty good deal. He recognizes that. And she's finally starting to soften up towards him and realizing this guy could be useful. And I think she sees a little bit of herself in him as well. Like, unwavering loyalty. Like, she was loyal to Renly Baratheon for so long. No, she's not stupid. She knows he likes men. God. Duh, okay? He was just being nice to me. You don't have to make fun of me more, okay? I get it. Her straight up saying, I'm not stupid here. 
Remember how I was talking last episode about how I categorized Brienne in the average good category? In the book, certainly, I think she had no idea about Renly. I think most people had no idea about Renly. I think, I mean, Renly's sexuality was barely hinted at in the books. Here it's more of an open secret, enough that, Bri- that Brienne has to say, yeah, I was into him, but I know he wasn't into me, okay? I'm not dumb. I'm just dedicated to people who were nice to me. I was a joke, but as long as I was serving him, I wasn't a joke. He made me something other than a joke. I think maybe she sees Podrick as a bit of a joke, barely able to ride his horse. He's been used as a punchline on this show a few times, too. I mean, you know, amazing in the sack. Like, oh my god, can you believe Pod is a great lover? <laughs> Podrick Payne? That guy? She sees he's capable of something. Just like Renly saw she was capable of something. Something great. We're finding common ground here, guys. It's the two mismatched partners who hate each other at first, but they learn to get along. It's a straight-up buddy cop movie. It works with Brienne and Jamie, and it works with Brienne and Podrick, okay? For very different reasons, but Brienne is a good partner. So what's going on at the Red Keep? Hmm. Oh, there was a wedding. We just cut straight past that. We saw a kiss, and they played some royal music, and then, oh, yep. You can stop wondering. Marjorie is straight fucking Tommen. A lot. Like, all night. And Tommen could not be happier. So... Again, a couple of smart moves here, Game of Thrones writers. Man, I've been saying Game of Thrones writers are smart a lot already in this short podcast series, but God, this is just a master class in how to adapt a book and adapt a world from one medium to another. First of all, they know the association that Game of Thrones viewers have with weddings at this point. You see a wedding on screen, you assume something bad is going to happen. So what do you do when you have a a text that requires an uneventful wedding? Although I don't think they ever got married in the books. That's different. I mean, they've aged Tommen up a little bit. So maybe it's more believable. But still, they really, they got to it. I think that's part of what made it so surprising. We just, we're at, we are at King's Landing. We get to see that big walk up to the church where they're married. By the way, that's going to become real important later on in this season just looking at that walk and in fact gets even more overtly foreshadowed later in this episode but we cut from that walk to them kissing like oh i guess they're married now and then pretty shortly after that we're just in bed straight past the wedding just letting you know they're fucking they are fucking now when Tyrion was set to marry sansa they made a pretty big deal about how gross that was with Tyrion saying, I will not do it, she's a child, and eventually just refusing to consummate the marriage altogether because he just he just couldn't do it with someone so young. Marjorie evidently has no such qualms. She'll fuck a gay dude, she'll fuck a gay dude with her brother, if it helps the fucking happen. She'll fulfill a few of Joffrey's sadistic fantasies, if that helps, and she'll fuck a kid. Yes, Tommen is older here. But I'm going to say he's not older than Sansa. I don't think he is older than Sansa. Or even older than Sansa was when she was going to marry Tyrion. Not that it looks like Tommen minds, of course. I'm sure he feels like he's cock of the lock. But still. I know that when it's a teenage boy as an older woman as opposed to a teenage girl as an older man, it is more acceptable or considered more acceptable. But I think this show understands that there is a violation going on here. 
And I think it's uh, I think it's going out of its way to kind of shove it in our faces with all of Marjorie's sex talk saying I hear four is the record. Well, don't you think we can beat it? And giggling with the girls and making some pretty crass remarks to his mom. Like, basically just shoving it in everybody's face. Tommen has given me the D. It's supposed to feel like a violation, I think. And an indication of... Marjorie may be... May seem sweet and loving and kind, and she may indeed be kinder than a lot of the people on this show, but she's manipulative and ruthless in her own way and willing to cross some serious lines to get what she wants. That said, good on you, Tom and Buddy. You're the king now. Live it up. And they show, and this, and this is an appropriate, this is an appropriate way to treat Tom as a character. A decent guy? Sure, he is a decent guy, but he'll let power go to his head a little bit, and he's able to be manipulated by Poontang. He loves his mom. It's clear in that conversation of Cersei, he's very fond of her and remembers, you know, little details about the things he she likes and doesn't like. He's an attentive son who wants the best for her, but he's been successfully convinced that what his mom really wants deep down is to be back at Casterly Rock, away from all the scheming and the Tyrells. Just let the Tyrells do their thing. I'm sure Cersei would be fine with that. After all, it is clear Cersei and Marjorie love each other. I mean, they just absolutely think they are the best people ever. I mean, Marjorie just adores Cersei. And she's keeping it together well, considering she's had to go through so much. I mean, with her father dying and her son dying. Can you blame her for being a protective mother? I certainly can't. It's actually very sweet. You should have let your mother be protective of you. Cersei, on the other hand, thinks Marjorie is quite lovely. Though is she intelligent? I can't tell. You tell me. Do you think she's intelligent? Cersei is not quite as good at being subtle as Marjorie is. Cersei is blunt. Even when she's trying not to be, she, she like, cannot help it. But she is good at, say, going over to Marjorie and Marjorie's group of giggling girlfriends and making every single word she says sound like a threat. Marjorie does a good job here reminding you that she is a force to be reckoned with, but Cersei does the same thing. This is going to be a battle of wills worth keeping an eye on, not that I think Tommen, like once again, particularly minds. Cersei's got to play this right. Cersei's got to keep Tommen on her side. She's trying to find allies wherever she can. She's got Kyburn, she's got Pycelle, she's got Mace Tyrell. She's got some lackeys. But I think she realizes she needs she's going to need more than that if she's going to put together like a genuine ruling coalition. Particularly with Marjorie nipping at her heels. So when she sees an opportunity to make a new friend, she goes for it. That's the best way I can explain Cersei deciding to arrest the High Septon and instead promote the High Sparrow, essentially. She hears about what the uh, what the sparrows did to the High Septon, foreshadowing. And she decides these sparrows are capable of some crazy shit. I'm not particularly into their angle, but these guys mean business. It's good to have guys who mean business on our side. If I lift the sparrows up in turn, they'll make me seem holy and they'll protect me. She keeps accusing Marjorie of being a whore after all. Why can't she be the Madonna? It seems like a natural role for her to play into. Even if it's clear she personally disdains this kind of stuff, she loves power. And so she loves making powerful friends. She thinks she's being smart. That's the thing about Cersei. She always thinks she's making smart moves. 
How long is that going to last? Still, they're doing a great job depicting the Sparrows, who, of course, are going to play a major role. Not the first example of radical religion we've seen in this world, but a very believable one. These extra pious guys who cover themselves with sackcloth, but it's clear have broader missions to purify the world. They're not going to just kind of sit in their tent. And it's super exciting to see Jonathan Price as the High Sparrow, man. If you're not excited by Jonathan Price, go back and watch Brazil. And then come back and see this. He's a... It's a role that, kind of like we saw with Kieran Hins playing Mance Raider, you bring in this actor who you know is capable of giving like real weight and gravity to a role. And then we see him play the role, actually sort of lightly. Because yes, Mance is sort of, you know, he's a leader, so he's supposed to have that sort of regal bearing. But it's also clear he's, again, a pragmatic man and kind of a normal Joe. Certainly in the books, he was a, kind of a normal Joe. And here, the High Sparrow is not as crazy as you would expect. He's wise to what his actions mean. He's wise to why Cersei is there. He's not supposed to be interested in politics and power plays, but he clearly understands them. And that makes him an interesting guy to watch. Religion overall is playing a big role this season, as it should. We got, the, we got the, this whole storyline inside this mysterious temple. The High Sparrows are playing a big role. And here we see uh, the Red Priests coming back. And Volantis. Holy crap, guys, we went to Volantis this episode. Is it only like a matter of time before we see the Doom of Valyria? Are we going to get to see all the cool places? Are we going to get to see Casterly Rock finally? But we saw, but we saw a Red Priest... Which get, and, and here we got to see a very interesting view in an episode where Daenerys Targaryen didn't appear of kind of the broader impact she's had on the world. That impact really hasn't made, made its way to Westeros yet. But God, in any city with slaves in it, of course she'd be basically worshipped as a savior. And of course the Red Priest would love this woman who was bathed in dragon fire and came out unscathed, who has these beasts that create fire. When it comes to the Song of Ice and Fire, she's pretty clearly on the fire side. I wonder if Melisandre even knows about her. If she did, would she realize, oh god, I've been following the wrong person this whole time. Why the hell am I at the wall? But it's interesting because, kind of like the way religion and sex were being intermixed in uh, the High Septon at the brothel, here we see Daenerys Targaryen both being worshipped as a savior and also being the most popular choice to fuck down at the brothel. Everybody wants to bone Daenerys. And everybody worships Daenerys. And probably Jorah Mormont wants to do both of those things more than any man alive. God, as soon as Tyrion stepped into the brothel, I was just like, oh, come on, Jorah, where is Jorah? I know you're here, buddy. And then he popped up. I'm like, yeah, my man. Clearly not in a great state. But at least we know when he says, I'm taking you to the queen... He means I'm taking you to Daenerys. I don't think there's any question about that. Pushing Tyrion further to his chosen destination. It really does seem chosen at this point. When the Red Priest looks at him like, yeah, I know where you're, I don't know exactly who you are, but I know where you're going, mister. Not that Tyrion is doing a great job disguising who he is. He shouldn't have left the box in the first place. But as soon as he leaves, he's telling people, you know, I used to be very, very rich and I always pay my debts. Did you know that about me? Self-destructive, of course. He hasn't been shy about telling us. He has a death wish. 
And I think even if he's not officially trying to drink himself to death anymore, he's still part of him wants to be caught. Part of him feels like he needs to atone for his crimes. He's a good man who's done some terrible things, essentially. Maybe he's not a good man. Maybe he really is his father's son. I'm sure this is the kind of thing that keeps him up at night. And so after he's done a very good job sweet-talking a whore into uh, sleeping with him despite the fact he has no money, are you surprised by that? Are you surprised that Tyrion knows how to talk to whores? You shouldn't be. It's been apparent that he feels more comfortable with them than he does, like, anybody else in the world. But considering he also just killed a woman who was a whore who he loved, he couldn't even stand to hear her call that, called that name. Is it any surprise that he has mixed feelings, to say the least, about picking up that whole enterprise again? He thinks he wants it. That's the direction he's heading. He's all but ready to do it, and then he realizes, wait, I can't do this anymore. In a charming moment of self-awareness, I'm as shocked as you are, and I hope this state of affairs passes. What am I going to do with my time? Funny, charming Tyrion has been gone for what feels like an entire season, and it is nice to see him back. And I'm sure Varys is very unhappy he's not in the wheelhouse, but I think Tyrion is happier, and I'm certainly happier. I'm happy that it's not just Tyrion, and I'm happier that it's not just Tyrion and Varys talking in a box for 10 episodes. Stuff is happening. Stuff is happening on this show, guys. Can you feel it? Can you feel the plot momentum? Because I can. We are three episodes in, and it feels like things are racing towards definitive, exciting events. Interesting alliances are being formed. Interesting paths are about to cross. I am, I'm, I'm so caught up in it. Guys... Thank you for listening to another episode of Josh Talks Thrones. You know where to find me. I gotta wrap this thing up. I'm a busy man these days. Follow me at Radio TFB on Twitter. Till then, catch you guys next week. Valar Morgulis.